Welcome to the world's premier Black Crows podcast. State of America. Hosted by three of the band's most dedicated fans. Steve Gleason, David Hudson, and Ian Rice. And now, let's get the show on the road. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the State of America podcast. My name is David, and I'm here with my host, Ian Rice. Ian, how are you? How you doing, sir? I am well. And this week, we're here with our other host, Steve Gleason. Yes. Steve, how are you? Good, guys. How's it going? All right. So for those of you that are tuning in and are like, there's three hosts, uh, Steve bid on our uh, Nucci Space charity auction around Christmas time, and he... Uh, was the winning bidder to be a host for the week. And so uh, we're really excited about this episode. Ian and I have been talking about it for a couple of weeks. We've been uh, including uh, Steve in our, uh, all our messages, just like we normally would during the week. And uh, we're really excited about that. But before we get to it, if you remember, Steve was on before with Seth Miller. And they are in the band uh, The Amorkins, which is a Black Crows tribute band, which are really, really good. If you're in the Northeast and you see those guys playing, go see them. Their set list is... Uh, they play songs that I don't know if the Crows have ever <laughs> even actually played before. But, Steve, you guys had a really cool moment a couple of weeks ago. You got to play uh, at Daryl's House in upstate New York, which uh, they used to have a show, I think, on Access TV that uh, uh, musicians would come and he would play with them there. So, uh, first of all, congratulations on landing that gig. But second of all, how did that uh, how'd that night go? Uh, it went great. Um yeah, we were out back in the dressing room and looking at all the names. Everyone's uh, written their autograph up on the wall, and we put our uh, sticker next to Cheap Trick and <laughs> uh, and Puddle's Pity Party. So it was pretty uh, surreal. Um, yeah, we came out, and uh, we had a really good show. It was a, it was a lot of fun and uh, a good crowd, and yeah, it was great. Great. Great to play in New York, definitely. Yeah, I mean Daryl Hall is is such a a talented guy. He kind of got pigeonholed like with that with his '80s material, but he, I mean, he really he knows how to lead a band and 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 do all this. I I think it's really cool that he does did that show and has that venue, and it's it's cool. That's a cool place. It's a really vibey place. I mean, he's a you know classic '60s soul singer kind of guy, and uh, yeah, it was very exciting to play there. And uh, yeah, a million people have played there, and. Uh, yeah, it, it's it, it was a good uh, benchmark for the band. We were very excited about it, and uh, we want to play again. And uh, they're going to have us back sooner or later. And yeah, we just got the video, so we'll be uh, cutting up little snippets of it and uh, sending them out. Yeah, it, it, it looked great. I've watched. Um, I think Seth sent me a video, and um, one of the things I I like about you guys is um, I've always thought it's kind of corny when you go to some of these uh, tribute bands and they, ha they try to dress like the band and they have to, uh, you know, do their gimmicks. Like if it's a kiss band, somebody's going to be, uh, you know, blowing fire and uh, spitting blood. And uh, I think it's really great that you guys just don't worry with any of that and just concentrate on the music because you're very, very true to the, the song from everything that I've seen. That's uh we are um, only concerned with the tones. Uh, we want to get all that stuff right. And play. We want it to be as authentic as possible. Every little nuance that you hear, we want. You know, like we do uh, the Greasy Grass River, but we don't do the album version. We do the the circusy intro from 05, which we're going to talk about later on in the episode. Yes, yes, uh, yes. We don't do cosplay, but we try and keep <laughs> it as authentic as possible. 
you know. See, I, I think it's more important to to get the the sounds down pat than I mean, I don't need people to look like I always see the the one that always leaps to mind when somebody says that is like Doors tribute bands. The guy always has to do all the the Jim Morrison-y stuff and that's that's not the important part. It's the music, really. Right. All right, everybody. So like we said, Steve uh, bit on this and it's kind of his show. So what we told him was you pick the topic, you pick the outro music, and we're going to uh, we're going to go along with him and thankfully he picked a uh, a really awesome topic for the day and it's one we've kind of Ian and I've kind of been knocking around uh, wanting to do and just never have pulled the trigger on it so Steve you won the right to to kind of say this tell everybody what we're going to talk about all right so uh we're going to talk about bootlegs and we're going to take a deep dive into a run of shows there are a whole bunch to uh to pick and to look at but we came around to uh San Francisco in 2005 the band was hitting on all cylinders then you have five shows they all have a very different character and life to them. While there are some repeats, they play them differently in each night. And uh, it should be fun to break these down and see what everyone thinks. We're going to rate them. But before I start, and I think it's apropos here, I want to thank this dude from Ohio. His name's Arnold Jones. And I really feel like this guy is a great example of the community we have here in Crowland, much like you two guys and as much as you give back. He's a dude from Ohio that loves the podcast, by the way, made that very clear to me who out of the blue sent me a couple of Brothers of a Feather boots from 06 that recently circulated. He sent them to me through Messenger because, one, he likes to share, and two, he thought I was cool on a couple of posts. I just think this is great. And I think it speaks to the majority of the community that we have here. And like you guys had on Hagar recently, which was a great episode, by the way. And that dude was sending me mind-blowing bootlegs like well over 20 years ago just because he liked to spread the music. So I wanted to say, you know, thanks again, Arnold. Really, you're a good man. And uh, before we deep dive into these soundboards, um, I'd like to say thanks to all the tapers who got us through so many years with the band. You know, uh, Hagar, Scott Weber, Mike Rathburn, et cetera. These guys are the unsung heroes of Black Crow's Land. Amen oh, to that. Very, very much so. Yeah, Arnold's a good guy. He has he has sent me some stuff as well. And, uh, and me. Yeah, and... Ian and I have always said, like, it used to just irritate the stew out of me back in the BNP days, and like, specifically when the band sessions came out, people were just, you know, they would go in there and talk, talk in code on, on the message boards about different songs, and nobody would share it with you, and like, you know, you just had to like beg and plead, and I mean, come on, that's, if you, if you love this band as much as we all do, you want to see the band do well, first of all, and second of all, you want, the more people hear this stuff, the more... It, invested interest they're going to have in it and so i completely believe in like if i've got it and somebody wants it i'm going to share it with them and that seems to be here lately those issues seem to have gone away because man everybody's sharing everything there's no sense in sitting on this stuff if you've got it uh, unless it's something that you've been told specifically cannot be shared which there are some things out there like that that you know people have but yeah i'm like you arnold's a good guy he's just one of many that um that help everybody out. And so if you've got something good and somebody wants it, if you feel comfortable, share it with them and let's get the music out there because we're not probably not going to have a whole lot of more shows like that, that, that right, where we're going to talk about tonight. And so yeah. uh, we need to, you know, enjoy those when we get the chance to. So Steve, you, you know, we're talking about runs and this is obviously one of the best runs the band had this five night run. Uh, this is for you and Ian. 
how many times have you gone to back to back shows or even back to back to back shows? Oh, a lot. Um, <laughs> I don't know. At least back to back to back 20 times. Wow. Wow. I should have answered first because my answer is much lower. <laughs> well, you know, I live up near Boston. Mm. You know, Rich said from the stage with the Magpie three years ago, Boston has always been our best market. They tour here a lot. You know, I've seen a lot of shows, but it, it was easy to see a lot of shows. Plus, I traveled a lot. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I've seen upwards of seven in a row. I've seen a lot, wow. you know, much like you guys have. I mean, yeah. look, this is a band that people have seen a lot of shows. Right. Yeah, early on when I started going, you know, I was much younger. And like when they when they first got together, uh, 05, and they initially just announced those Hammerstein Ballroom shows, I, I could only afford one. Yeah. So I would have liked to have done a run there. But, you know, later on, like I – they did a run in um, – I think it was 08 where it was around Halloween and it was two electric shows. And then they went over to the town hall and did two acoustic shows. And I caught all four of those. And they – a couple of years – I think 07 they did this – place i've never seen anybody else play there the united palace theater that was halloween also i saw them there twice but otherwise it's usually one-offs for me unfortunately i did a a back-to-back memphis and then biloxi which is on the coast so that was uh it was like 450 miles in between i did that one and then uh the crows were part of the greatest 72 hours of my musical life in uh, 2010 mode roommate called me and um, i'm a huge pink floyd fan and we got third row dead center tickets for the the wall when Waters was performing the wall, and my my hotel literally attached to the the place where Roger Waters was, and then literally across the park was the Tabernacle, and I saw the Crows the next two nights in a row on the Ten tour. I I got a lot of white whales checked off on that. I got like a tornado. <laughs> I got feeling all right. I got fearless thunderstorm. You know, some that um, that I'd really been chasing and, and never never got to see, and so that was the greatest musical seventy two hours of my life. And I was really hoping it was going to work out this summer when all the because uh, I've got a, a I'm very fortunate with my job. I get a lot of time off, and uh, I was really wanting to uh, if they were doing different set lists every night, catch like a week, you know, spend a week traveling around the country uh, going to see them. But I I don't see myself doing a lot of I'm going to go see one show for sure, and there's another one i am kind of got my eye on, but I don't see myself doing three or four nights in a row of Shake Your Moneymaker. Yeah, I'm having a hard time uh, seeing a bunch. I'm seeing Guilford, New Hampshire, and uh, Great Woods, which I guess now is, I don't know, Comcast or Tweet or whatever it is. Uh, I was going to ask you what it's called now because I can't remember either. <laughs> I'm not 100% sure, to be honest. <laughs> and uh, actually, somebody just got me a ticket to um, – Guns and Roses the same night with Smashing Pumpkins, and I'm having a hard time saying no. All right, know, let me, all right, let me ask you this. Have you seen the reunited Guns N' Roses? I haven't. Okay, I saw them at the Superdome with the cult. As far as just spectacle, if you, if you factor in spectacle, music, oh. and the wow factor, it was the best concert I've ever been to. I saw the original Guns N' Roses a bunch wow. because I'm old. So, but... <laughs> I I saw them on Appetite. Wow, like three That's or four cool. times. I was like so eleven. You, you saw the out. Izzy Izzy Stradlin. Uh, oh yeah, I saw yeah. Izzy a bunch of times. Yeah, Izzy would have been a great Black Crow. Izzy pretty much is a Black Crow. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> well, Mark played uh, Mark played on Izzy's uh, first the Juju Hounds album, but Juju he's uncredited Hounds. on it. Yeah. Right. 
I've, right. looked, I've actually uh, talked back and forth on Facebook with Jimmy Ashurst, you know, who was in the Juju Hounds and was in uh, Sweet Pickle Salad and all of that. And, right. Uh, I'm I'm trying to get him on um, to come on and talk about all that. But yeah, uh, Mark played uncredited on that, that first Izzy Stradlin the Juju Hounds record was great. I mean, it was seventy Stone type swagger to it. Yeah. He's quoted as saying, "I want my record to sound like Exile on Main Street. It's a staple of my life." <laughs> Is that right? Because that's funny because it does kind of have that vibe to it. So. Sure, shuffle it all. All right. So, um, Steve, what is your? Let's see. We talked about how many nights in a row you've seen. What is your favorite venue you've ever seen the Crows perform in? Uh, Hampton Beach Casino. They love that place. I mean, I love the Orpheum in Boston. You know, I saw him at the joint, too, in, in Vegas. That was pretty excellent. But I have to say the Hampton Beach Casino, they brought so much fire there. Ever I've seen every show they've ever played there, and every one of them was amazing. Ian, did you see you? the uh, Did you see the joint show that was the 96, that one? or No, I, I was there in 05. It was my oh, 35th gotcha. birthday, and I went out for those two shows. Nice, man. Yeah, it was great. How about you guys? Where, where are your favorite venues to see them? Well, I always love any show at the Tabernacle. Like I've seen Oasis there and some other bands in Atlanta, but probably the coolest venue is uh, Mud Island in Memphis. It's a amphitheater that's actually in the Mississippi River. And yeah, you, I have a booth there from 05. Yeah, I was, I was at that show. And so yeah. you have to take a tram overhead uh, to get to the island. And it was in, like I think, like early October, and it was – for a cold front came through for us. I know you guys would be in flip flops and sandals and, 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 and be <laughs> all right. But it was like in the, like the mid thirties and the wind was blowing off the, uh, the river and nobody came prepared for that. And it's one of, it's, it's always quoted in, I think, uh, Crow's base. Chris goes, how about everybody take all that marijuana you've got and bring it up to the front and let's just start a fire and try to keep warm. <laughs> uh, right. <laughs> that was with, uh, the drive by truckers and when they had Jason Isbell and it was just a, it was a raging, a raging show, but yeah, that was that's always a cool place to go see. Ian, what about you? I really liked seeing them at the town hall, but that was a that was an acoustic. It was a full band acoustic, but that was a really cool venue because that's like the size of a high school auditorium, and it's uh, you know it's, it was really intimate. And then um, I always have fond memories of seeing them at the Hammerstein Ballroom in '05 uh, because that was the first time I was ever up front for something, and just to see them up close like that. And I always, I always stand on Rich's side because I like to watch him play. But, at, you know, before he started doing his solo stuff and became more, you know, outspoken, Rich kind of had this air of, don't come near me, uh, you know. So uh, I remember standing there, and every time he would look in my direction, I'd look away because I didn't want to catch, catch his eye or anything. Those shows were so packed, I went Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Did you? And that was, yeah, that was a great place to see them. Those shows were excellent. You know, Friday night when they broke out, Feathers and Willen, I looked over at my friend and said, it's all back on the table now. We're going we're gonna to lose a lot of money going around the country to see these guys. Whoever took, like, the amateur video that, that they synced up with the bootleg audio, yeah. yeah, actually, if you look all the way at the right side of the screen, it's the side of my head. So they, were, they must have been right behind me. <laughs> all right, Steve, so why don't you kind of get us to, to where we are for this run Kind of what's okay. been going on with the band. Just kind of catch us up to the Fillmore run and maybe talk a little bit of why the Fillmore is such a special place for the Crows. Well, I think this is their first run there, actually. Um, and I think this kind of started their relationship with that. And, you know, they they had uh, had that early. Uh, they came out of the Hammerstein stuff with Bill Dubrow. And, uh, you know, Steve came back in the uh, beginning of May in Atlanta. 
and then they played Boston, and then they did a little run, and then they went on that uh, Tom Petty opening tour that seemed to last like three and a half months, which I never understood why they did it, but you know, a lot of people saw them, I guess. And then they went on a, a West Coast swing. Uh, I went out to the Vegas shows. They played a lot of places out there they hadn't played in a long time. And they came in, a hot band who had played a lot of shows at that time. And, you know, here's a place. I, I don't think they played more than two nights anywhere uh, except the Hammerstein up until that point. So they came into this pretty hot. And, uh, you know, I think if you're going to assess bootlegs, you have to you have we have to have a common framework to assess them on. So I figured we'd kind of lay that out. So I think uh, you have a basic uh, six criteria, but one isn't really going to come into play here. One is the set list. By far, the most important thing for me, part of the reason that I fell in love with the Crows was the ever-changing set list. That's a big deal to me. You had to go to all the shows because you might miss something. What if I wasn't there when they pulled out that Almond Brothers tune or title song or something like that? It's part of the allure of the band, and in that sense, at least for me, it's the most important part of assessing a bootleg is how good the set list is. Uh, it's probably the reason that people trade, you know, 95 to 97 and 05, 06 so heavily because they're they're just all over the place there. So in my my head, a perfect set list makes a show. You know, there's a reason that Gorman lists uh, 12.30.05 as the best show they ever played. I was at that show and I was like, damn, did I write this set list? This is unbelievable. You know, so was that a, was that a Virtue and Vice opener? Uh, Virtue and Vice. Did that open the set? Yeah, that opened the, I was going to say, did it open the second set? I thought it opened one of them. It did open one of them. I'm trying to remember if it was first or second. But it was like Beware of Darkness and Roadside Tragedy and Street Fighting Man and just every tune I was like, damn, did I write this? So that's (laughs) as good as as anyone has ever been, you know? So if if you don't have that bootleg, I mean, they were better that night than on New Year's Eve. In Madison Square Garden, in my opinion. You know, I agree with Steve. Did you go to the MSG show? I didn't. My, it's the only show my wife has ever said, we're not going. I'm not going to New York for that. Nope. Yeah, that would have been rough. It's, it's New York City is rough on New Year's. Yeah. Well, she lets me go to everything. So, I, you know, it's hard to argue. You know, <laughs> it happens. So, I think the second criteria. Do you guys have anything to add mm-hmm. to the set? Let's keep going. Okay. Oh, yeah. So, the second, the second big thing is performance. And I think sometimes performance can overcome a, a seemingly stale set list. Uh, most yes. of the great bootlegs from like the High as the Moon era are excellent because they're absolutely killing it in most of those shows. There weren't many mailed-in shows in 92 or 93. Sometimes, though, Chris's voice isn't very good, you know, probably for a variety of reasons, or the show might sound kind of slow. I think, you know, it depends on what they're doing. Sometimes acoustic performances add a different flavor, be it good or bad. Uh, I think we're going to discuss that at length in these shows. Next up, I think, is rarities. Rarities for me mean everything. So specific songs for me can put a show into the stratosphere. I was at the first Boston show for Magpie, and the minute I heard the opening lick for Where'd You Throw Away, it put that show into the pantheon for me. I had waited forever to hear that. And we we actually started playing it in the Americans. Uh, and uh, I'll tell you what, <laughs> I love that song. Uh, <laughs> When One Mirror Too Many came on at the end of that show, it just put it over the top for me. I've like, I've been lucky enough to see the Crows do Exit, I don't know, three or four times. Wow. They didn't play it that much, you know? I just think uh, these shows can be elevated because of that. The next thing would be covers. 
like the dead the crows are a band that absolutely kills covers they've introduced me to bands that i love love like little feet i adore a bunch of the covers they play you know big time willing dreams torn and fray girl from the north country hot burrito number two the a bunch of those songs are songs i really wasn't turned on to before i saw the crows do them and i just think they in many cases play the definitive version of the song who would you rather see sing oh sweet nothing I was just going to say that to you, Steve. It's like a lot of their times, their version is better than the original, you know, and that, and that Oh Sweet Nothing is a definite example of that for me anyway. You know, a lot of other uh, tracks are like that, too. Yeah, agreed. Uh, as well, I think jams can be really put a bootleg over the top. Specific jams can make or break the bootleg. The Crows have set pieces that we're all aware of, right? And they anchor most shows. Again, I think this is right out of the dead playbook, right? They would do Scarlet Fire or China Rider or Help Slip Franklin. And look, if you really think about it, Ballad Wiser, Thorn's Progress and Thorn, any Black Moon Jam and My Morning Song, those are all exactly the same thing in function. I would assume that most of the sets are constructed around them. But a great jam can elevate something to like the zenith or... It can, it can really kill a show. And the last thing is sit-ins. Always a welcome addition. I don't think it really happens in, in this at all. But, you know, I've seen Warren Haynes sit in. You mm-hmm. maybe got Alan Woody, Lesh, The Dirty Dozen I've seen sit in. Seen a lot of people sit in. Those are always good moments. Always. Absolutely. And, and I think that's the basic framework you have to apply to these bootlegs is that criteria. And then judge them on that. And that will give you a framework to judge bootlegs against other bootlegs that aren't just like, oh, I like that one. Well, why do you like it? (laughs) So I thought we'd structure this conversation around that. You know, we have five separate shows. We can see what you think about each show. I studied for this, Steve. I, I, uh, you know, I did my homework, so I'm ready to go. All right. I deleted all the music off my phone except these uh, five shows. Like two weeks ago. Yeah, just cool. been, been listening through them. All right. So the Fillmore in San Francisco, like Steve said, after this became kind of one, basically their adopted venue. And I think a lot of it obviously has to do with the Chris and the dead connection. And then Chris living in uh, Marin County, which I think is just on the other side of the bay from San Francisco. But they always seem to uh, take it up a notch. And Chris has always loved playing San Francisco and, I guess, you know, the CRB is pretty much based out of there. So we're going to talk about the dead a little bit later on because they do definitely come into play. But the first mm. show was August the 5th. This one um, starts off with one of my favorite openers and one of my favorite covers that they do. The band's version of the Marvin Gaye song, Don't Do It. I go down the river, where I'll be.
I really like it when they start a show off with this. I've seen, I've been to a show they started off with this, and when they're doing it right, Rich usually starts it off, and then Chris gets a verse, and then when they're coming, I think out of the solo, Mark gets like a stanza that he usually uh, chimes in there. So, Steve, don't do it right out of the box. Great, great cover and great opener. Great opener. Uh, I actually think there are better versions. I think uh, Chris is really excited to play here, but I, he does step all over Mark's verse. He sings right over him. And yeah, Mark has that that third verse. Uh, I, for one, I love Mark's voice. I think, you know, yes. any, any one song that he sings in a bootleg, I'm in. Uh, Alabama, any of those. I, I love his voice. And, you know, I just think they're real excited to play. They come out really ready. I think... Uh, you know, Mark's outro solo is absolutely insane. It's insane. He's he's killing it. They're they're fired up. That's what I was thinking about. I always liked because uh, I was introduced to that track when Rich Rich's first solo release was live at the Knitting Factory, which some people yep. forget about, and he does that on there, and it is like note perfect to the band version, and I I loved it. Yep. And actually, um, most Crow's versions for me pale in comparison to it. You're right, though. There are some uh, some very smoking versions of it. This one is, is a it's a great opener, and they you know they it sets the tone for the evening. But it's it's not the top top version I've ever heard of it. And that leads us into what I think should permanently be song number two. Uh, <laughs> I don't think it's cheesy that they do that. I just think this song works every time in the in the two hole from Southern Harmony. Uh, always fun, always high energy. Sting me. Yeah, I love Sting Me. Um, really fun song to play. I think this is a very standard uh, two-slot version of it. Listening to it, for me, Chris's voice was all over the place, and it actually cracks two or three times in the performance. I, I, I wonder if they hit the ganja kind of hard before they went on, <laughs> you know, kind of what was happening. They come out real strong, and, and sometimes, uh, yeah, I just don't think this is the best version of it. I think they play it two more times in the run, and I think they're both better versions. Now, let me ask you, because at the at the time, I remember, because I spent a lot of time on message boards. Yeah. And um, there's a, there was always a, a great debate about them always using it in the uh, second slot. I always thought it was fine because it's such a strong song. But uh, some people really didn't didn't care for it. They thought it was too playing it too safe. What, what, what's your take on it? Uh, we play in the two slot in the Americans a lot. Uh, I think it's a, I think it's a great I think it's a great um, a great place to play it. I think it's an up song. I think um, depending on they like to open with some different choices sometimes, and maybe sometimes they'd open with something people wouldn't know. Then no sting me. It's the opening song off Southern Harmony, and I think it kind of gets people right into the, a certain frame of mind. And it starts with that you know bomb 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 kind of thing, and you know foot stomping kind of tune. And I I think it's a, a perfect call for the second slot. All right. So as we're looking at the rest of set one, Steve, what what are what do you think are some more highlights from set one? I think another roadside tragedy, probably my favorite song off the band record. I'm immediately excited when I hear that drum intro. I love uh, uh, Mark and Rich's you know staccato approach to the guitars. They're all tight. It pulses. Sven's very funky, chromatic bass line. Like, this tune is a winner every single time it elevates, every set that it's in. In this version, Mark's really heavy on the wah pedal. God, is he murdering it. I found myself saying over and over, Mark's killing this. Ed's killing this. Mark's killing this. Ed's killing this. It started right here. Ed always seems to layer in a perfect run where there's space. I just think he's an amazing musician. I, hear, I think the breakdown... 
uh, in this particular version is beautiful. And, you know, these guys, they weave, Rich and Mark weave a sonic tapestry with those guitars that are unlike mm-hmm. almost any two people together. I mean, look, I know people don't think a lot of Bob Weir at times, but Jerry and, and Bob weave this kind of sonic tapestry. I think it's a great example of a, of a, a road-tested band listening to each other and creating magic. I could listen to that song all day. I think it's the highlight of the first set. Oh, it's absolutely true with, with uh, regards to that tapestry that Mark and Rich lay down because they always fill the space that the other one's not filling, whereas a lot of dual guitar players will play the same thing a lot of times. They kind of are completing the whole picture simultaneously. I, I, I know it's like way left field, but uh, I remember watching a documentary about Def Leppard and, and Phil Collin would they say the that – uh, Right. Yeah, with, with him and Steve Clark would play opposite parts of each other, and it all together it sounds like this. You know, it's like that one big picture. And I always thought that was so cool because one guy you can't have the song work right if one guy's not part of it. You know, that's right. I mean, that's and right. we've experienced that when Mark's not in the band or with Rich's solo band, and, and mm-hmm. you can definitely, you can definitely hear hear that. I complete in complete agreement with both of you. Um, as I'm looking down the rest of it, one of the songs that sticks out to me is Coming Home. And uh, Steve, mm-hmm. you talked about how the Black Crows broaden your music horizons. I had never heard of Delaney and Bonnie uh, oh, until, yeah. um, I, you know, obviously I, heard, I went to a show. I, I caught this on like three different shows in a row, like Coming Home. And, you know, I'd go home and hit Crow's Base or whatever. And then Delaney Bramlett is from Mississippi. He's a Mississippi guy. And uh, yep. di- I didn't know that. And so I've gone back and, you know, gotten into some of their music. Uh, Coming Home is it's a cover. I've always I've always thought it was fun because it's got a little bit of Southern rock and it's got a little bit of soul in it and uh, just always a fun one. And then you got to lay it all on me. And that song definitely got elevated when Mark started taking that outro. Obviously, yes. obviously he wasn't on the recorded version, but... Uh, all in all, a uh, uh, um, pretty decent set. I had you know, I don't love so, lay it on me. You don't? I, I don't love lay it all on me. I do the full. I wrote down the Ford slide work on that is delicious. It's wonderful, right? <laughs> it's not a tune that I love or even like that much. They didn't play it that often. They only played it sixty-seven times when I looked it up. Mm-hmm. But I, I feel like I've always felt like that tune is a poor attempt at winner by the Rolling Stones. But I feel like when they play it live and they have Ford and he has all that slide on the way out, it turns into a different song. To your point, David. Exactly. And I, I, I would agree, too. Like um, Ford did that to a lot of the Lions material and even some of the, the By Your Side material. Stuff that he didn't originally play on. Right. It's clear that he would have added a lot to it studio-wise, but definitely live. Yeah, I, I agree with you, David. Uh, coming Home is uh, always great to hear. Later in the run... It's it's tied into um, another track, and we'll get to that when we get to the show. But I think that's the superior version of it in this run because I think it's repeated twice, obviously, maybe three times. I'm not sure. Yeah, because they they fell in love with this song for a while. I think a little too much. The set's going to close out with a jam and "Thorn in My Pride." "Thorn in My Pride" is one of those songs I never get tired of hearing. I couldn't agree with you more. For me, Thorn in My Pride is the quintessential Black Rose song. It's the song where they went from like a great Stonesy first record to that band that would like dominate my musical landscape for close to the next 30 years. I feel it's a perfect song. It's ab- it's my favorite song to play in the Americans by far. Really? Oh, cool. Oh, I feel that any version live that doesn't have Thorn's progress, though, is a mistake, an absolute mistake. 
here they start Thorne's progress, but they digress right into this wah funk kind of jam that might have been like the beginning of something they were working on. And a lot of times you might hear in these jams uh, another tune that was going on. Like, you know, uh, I heard Late Nights again out of out of um, uh, my morning song once. I heard Pastoral. I was in Virginia once and they played Pastoral in the middle of my morning song. Spider and the Sugar Bowl Blues preceded Thorn in, in 96, specifically the 25th of October, 96 in Boston. Find that bootleg. It's tremendous. Anyways, the jam here for me is okay at best. I think they've hit it much harder and much more intense. I think the, the one they do on the last night is like off the charts good. I think that the Crows were never the masters of dynamics. And I think they, they build it here to a certain point. They, they play really loud and they rarely bring it down. Here they really ratchet up the sound and the intensity. The solo that comes back into the gospel piano coda here that ends the song is a, a lesson in bringing it down. The Crows can bring it to a transcendental finish and end this first set. And boy, Mark Ford is just dominating the end of this song. As he always does. All right, so uh, everybody goes and gets a beer, goes to the bathroom, comes back out. Yep. And uh, we have set two. People come out with acoustic guitars this time. We start off with a one-two punch of Sunday Night Buttermilk Waltz. I've never enjoyed this. I've never liked it. Um, it's always really? it's always kind of a skipper for me. Yeah, it just never has done anything for me. And so if I'm if I'm there and they're coming out of the break with this, I'm I'm not very happy. Now, to me, it was always, especially on 05, when Mark is coming back, it was like Rich and Mark making amends almost to me. It was like the visual version of them making amends or something. That's why I always liked it. And I actually thought the the live version was better than the the studio one. It, It was a little more to it, you know? I fall right in between you guys. Look, an acoustic set or start is cool, right? It'll get you guessing at where they might go. I have never been a buttermilk waltz guy ever. I trade it for just about anything. And I kind of feel bad saying that, but it's long and it really takes the the place of a full song in my mind. Uh, that said, it always seems to be a barometer of the relationship between Mark and Rich. You know, maybe I'm looking for something that isn't there, but when they play it, all seems right in Crowland to me. So that is why I like seeing it, but. You know. <laughs> well, they, they, they make up for it next, playing one of my favorite Neil Young's uh, songs off the uh, Zuma album, Pardon My Heart. And this one almost seems tailor-made for Rich and Chris. Oh, yeah, absolutely. When I when you look at set lists, which at the time everybody would later that evening run to Crow's Base and see the set list and try to, you know, or run to a message board and try to get a look at the set list. When you're looking at, oh, what covers did they do? And you see something like Pardon My Heart. That's fantastic. I mean, it's it's somewhat of a rarity, 
and they they always do justice to Neil Young material. I, is this a uh, is this a tune of uh, you're a fan of uh, Steve? I like it. I think uh, this is where you divide for me the casual fan and the hardcore fan. Hardcore fans will love the idea that they'll play something like this, and casual fans will be like, why don't they play She Talks to Angels instead? I don't love this cover, but I think anything that the idea that they play anything off Zuma, I think is great. Uh, I think obviously they're paying homage to Neil because they're in San Francisco. And I think there's something really cool about that. All right. So song number three is one that's always been one that I just cringe whenever I hear it. You don't miss your water. To me, the song is just too dang slow. Uh, I love Sweetheart of the Rodeo. So, like, I don't mind it, but I get where you're coming from. I think this is a tough thing to do to, to the crowd, though, is you open with Buttermilk Waltz, Pardon My Heart, and You Don't Miss Your Water. How about anybody in the crowd that's not a huge fan is like, what am I watching here? Ultimately, at that point, which is somewhat of uh, a 180 from where they're at right now, um, at that point, they were catering to their longtime fans. Most of the... Uh, the you know the hardcore people not necessarily these particular songs but they like to see things of this nature i always like the song you don't miss your water i agree with david that in this context it is very slow and for a show that started relatively high energy it kind of really brings it down it's more i think it's more suited to a full acoustic show or maybe a, a brothers of a feather situation so after that we have one of my favorite crow songs of all time good friday and that's gonna also we're gonna have how much for your wings after that I don't ever remember that being a, a, a one-two punch before. What about you guys? I don't remember it being one-two at all. No. No, most of the uh, How Much For Your Wings I ever heard, and they, most of them were 96, 97 there. That's a big, long jam on that, which was kind of cool. But I don't remember it ever really being paired with Good Friday all that much. I have to admit, I don't love uh, How Much For Your Wings live. Uh, that's probably blasphemous to say. I think that the <laughs> album version is fantastic. But I think like the jam is like this huge deconstructionist thing that they bring it down and bring it down and bring it down. It takes a long time to get there. And it's really it, – here it's not muddy on the end because Rich is on acoustic. But it usually is real muddy and it takes a long time to get there. Good Friday I love. I just love. I take that anytime. Mark's slide work, bingo. To me, like some of those long, really long live versions of How Much For Your Wings, it's kind of like to me the unnecessary breakdown and whole lot of love. Like what's the point? And it doesn't really go anywhere. You know? No, it doesn't. They just it's yeah, it's it's like when the dead are at their worst. <laughs> and I love the dead, but that's what it reminds me of. Up next it's just gonna get filthy with Greasy Grass River. Yes. With right, that me- as as Steve had mentioned earlier, that kind of building intro that wasn't on the record. It kinda of starts with Ed and then the uh, you know the, the harmony singing and all that. I love that.
Yeah, the circusy intro I just think is tremendous. This is one of those tunes that Mark, what a difference in 05 when he came back and played on this. It's wind into that riff. It's just, it's beautiful. They cut down the jamminess of the intro here. It's a showcase for Mark at the end, though. God, he is killing the wah pedal in this. What a great <laughs> tune. I, I, I love, we play this in the Americans like this. I love this tune. Yeah, Mark completely changes this song live. Uh, I, I'm, I'm in agreement with you. It's, it's, it's just great. And wasn't it Craig Ross played on the studio version? Seems like I, 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 I remember that. You know, he's always kind of one, one that's been associated with the Crows in one, one way or the other, but seems like we never officially get him on the record playing anything. He's just kind of uncredited and stuff like that. All right, so next, Hard to Handle, and there's a jam into Nebuchadnezzar based yep. on Steve's email n- name. Nebuchadnezzar <laughs> has to be a song that he likes. So, um, <laughs> you know, Hard to Handle, I've never liked the song. and Like I said, it's not because it's their biggest hit, because I love all the other hits. It just never has done anything for me. And I would be so disheartening if I went to a show and they closed with it, you know, because come back on the encore and you're getting all excited. Man, I'm going to get Will in. I'm going to get Exit. No, I've got Hard to Handle. So it's, I honestly, I always skip past this one. Even if I'm listening to a bootleg, I just go right past it. I, I will be honest. I, I, I feel the kind of the same way about the song for the same reasons. It's not because it's their biggest hit. It's just they have so much other material that's their own that I enjoy much more. But that being said, that the the way they did it on the 0506 tour was the best arrangement of it that I've ever I heard. It, you know, it's a little more, you know, they kind of play fast and loose with it. You know, it's it's really uh, it's really cool. But and the jam part is what makes it really cool to me. The song itself, I can I can do without on any night. It's a divisive song. I mean, I like playing it in the band. People respond to it every single time. But. Uh, exactly what david said if i was at a show this was the last encore i wanted you know i remember being at shows and saying to my buddy the tour we toured together i'm like anything but hard to handle anything but (laughs) it's dead but but you were rewarded with nebuchadnezzar right out of the jam absolutely absolutely i love this tune it's been my email address for 25 years i posted as nebuchadnezzar on blackrose.net for years um (laughs) i do feel that it's one of the rare tunes that the studio version is the definitive version. It's very Beatles-esque. I like the guitars a little better in it. I think they just have trouble capturing the tone of it live. I think this particular one they play is a little slow. For me, 1996 is the year, and I loved it as an opener on a bunch of those 96 bootlegs. I don't know about how you guys feel about it. I'm kind of I'm kind of lukewarm on the song. It's grown on me over the years versus like Blackberry. For I can't stand Blackberry. To me, Nebuchadnezzar always seemed a little bit out of place on Three Snakes. Uh, it wasn't kind of as chill or kind of druggy as some of the other stuff on there. But I don't know if I've ever seen it live, to be honest with you. So uh, I would be, if I were there, I would be excited getting to see it because it's another one you check off your list. I really enjoy the tune. I don't know. I can't recall if I've ever actually seen it uh, in a concert setting. But like, I got into the Crows with Southern Harmony, but... Three Snakes is when I started listening to them. Like, I really, and I remember, I can still remember that Nebuchadnezzar was the song that really drew me in. It was something about, it's very, it's like a desperation to it, and the way the guitars, the feedback, and the riff, and the lyrics. I, I always love it. If I had to pick a song off Three Snakes to have it in a show, that probably would be the one. Nice. I saw it in uh, 96 when they did the Hooked or By Crooked. 
uh, mini tour and they played it in Gardner Mass. I'd never heard it before and they opened with it. And I was like, good Lord, what is that? <laughs> and, uh, you know, they the album came out four days later and I like was dying to get it home just to hear that song and find out which one it was on the record. Right. <laughs> We're going to close the set out with Jealous Again and Remedy. And I think this is kind of an, if you're going to do a five night run, they kind of have, have hit some of the heavy hitters here all in a row, Hard to Handle, Jealous Again, and Remedy. I've never really enjoyed Remedy as a closer. I've enjoyed it. I enjoyed it as an opener, but I've just never have really enjoyed it as a closer, which obviously they played it more as a closer. And then you get Jealous Again there at the end. Jealous Again, one I always love hearing it live because I love that outro on it. It just it makes me just makes me happy and makes me want to dance. I can't dance, but in my head I'm I'm dancing. <laughs> um, so yeah, so here it is, the end of the second set, first night, and we go out with two heavy hitters. Right, I think they're pretty standard versions, and you know they don't do a lot of things different on those. And I don't think there's a lot to say about them except for they're great. I take them any single time they ever play, and they're tunes that made me love them. So. I always saw like ending with remedies, like you want to end with maybe like something high energy. Yeah, you know, you cut, you come in guns blazing, and you go out the same way. I, I always, I always kind of enjoyed uh, remedy as a closer, but uh, you, but you always would know there's there's an encore coming. So, right. yeah, and I hate this encore. Don't let me down. Oh, yeah, wow! I, I think I just heard. Okay. A, I think I just heard a pin drop, David. Uh, <laughs> okay. For me, they didn't play this song very much. I think they did it like 13 times total. I love this song. I would have been fired up to see it. I saw them do it in the Orpheum in 96 and was like, damn. I don't think Chris's voice is, is you know, can can carry it as much. It, it cracks near the end. I don't think that helps in this particular version of it. I'll take almost anything Beatles, personally. Hey, Ian, I'm going to say something real quick that's going to get me more hate mail than when I said I like the Lions episode. I am not a Beatles fan at all. Uh, and I realize that is like, that's blasphemy. And I am like the 0.01 of 0.01%. But their music has just never done anything for me outside of a few songs. And when I've been to a show and I've gotten like a Beatles cover, especially as an encore, I'm, I just walk away upset. So there, I've said it. I've admitted it. I've said it out loud. I'm going to claim it. So uh, it, it, I just never have gotten into the Beatles. It's the first step, Dave. Look, don't worry about it, man. Some some people don't like Bob Dylan. I don't know. I like I like it when other people play Bob Dylan songs. (laughs) Yeah, I've seen Dylan like sixty or seventy times. Uh, He's the closest closest to me to the Crows. Uh, Some things don't hit you. The Beatles don't hit you. They don't hit you. It doesn't make you a bad guy. Uh, It does, uh, of course, ruin the encore here for you, which is a shame. (laughs) Yes, it does. (laughs) It's the funny thing, like, because, David, you just said that you like hearing people play Dylan songs, which really is a testament to his ability as a songwriter, which uh, I always thought Dylan was a fantastic songwriter. And he has, you know, actually a lot of his material in the hands of the Black Crows, I've I've enjoyed a bit more. I, and I am a big fan of, of Dylan. All right, guys. So that's the end of night one. What's everybody's uh, ranking? I gave it a, uh, a seven. Same for me. Uh, seven out of ten for me. Just because it was um, uh, a bit light on the, uh, on the jams and the rarities a little bit for me. A good compared to other nights. We're in agreement. I had it as a seven as well. So... We move along to August the 6th, and this is the show that was recorded for Freaking Roll Into the Fog. So everybody listening to this should probably 
be familiar with it. One of the more interesting openers, they do only halfway to everywhere, and they have a horn section, and oh. man, do they kill it. I love it's, it. I it's love smoke. it. It's smoking. <laughs> Everywhere is everywhere and nowhere is nothing. I, I love the 05 versions of this. The one in Vegas just about blew my face off. This version with the horns, I love the placement. What a, what a start. Charity was talking about this tune, right? As funky as funky could be. I love this tune. Uh, it's, this is, uh, it's fantastic. And this version, that breakdown that happens at the end where it just goes to uh, you know Steve laying down a groove and then they all build back up into it. Uh, oh man and you're absolutely right steve the horns add that much more to it it's almost like how do you follow this as as an opener you know it's it's crazy well they followed it with the typical number two sting (laughs) me so we'll uh we'll we'll move on past that into uh, one of my favorite black crow songs a song that i think they can open with and close with and it and it be perfectly fine in both spots no speak no slave i love that kind of drawn out intro they do and when they Go into it, man. Steve just murders the drums on this. No speak, no slave. I'm never upset when this pops up on a set list, and they uh, they nail it on um, on this specific show. Yeah, I wrote down weird slot for this. Like I I like it to open or as the last song of the set. Always welcome. Uh, this in my mind is the fattest song in the history of rock. That riff is a sledgehammer. It's just badassery all over the place. I love playing this song in the Americans. This is a Mark Ford tour de force. The the riff that Rich and Sven are playing underneath the solo, too, by the way, I don't know if you've ever really focused on that. That's one of my favorite riffs ever. I wish there could be a whole song around that riff.
I adore No Speak, No Slave. What a great song. Oh, it definitely is a fantastic tune. Awesome as a, as the opener on most of the 92 shows, if not all. You're right, though, Steve. It is an odd placement for it. Usually you see it as an opener or uh, you know somewhere later in the set. It's kind of cool that it comes right after Sting Me Like That. It's like a you know a one-two Southern Harmony punch there, which is kind of interesting. Well, that's going to lead us into uh, another song that Mark Ford added a lot to, and that is, I would say, probably the last song they had played on the radio, and that's Soul Singing Off Lines. And uh, mm-hmm. this is great. The video of it, though, during the show, is this the one where like they show them like, walking through town? I wanted to watch the jam. I wanted to see what they're playing, and they, I, that's how I remember because they cut away from it. Oh. But yeah, it's the the O five O six version of this with the with that jam in it is fantastic. I, I what a jam, unbelievable. This is really an all time good soul singing jam too. It's it's jammy in an Almond Brothers kind of way. The way Southbound kind of rips, they bring it bring it up and uh, come back into that riff. I don't know. I think they know it's a Saturday night. I think they know they're being filmed. I do wish that that cutaway. It kills me during morning song. I don't remember it during soul singing, but that would kill me too. And that leads us into Welcome to the Good Times. They bring the horns back out. This is the first time the show's been played since 411 of 99. So they're uh, dusting one off there, and uh, it gets the horn treatment. It turns out to be a very good version, I thought. It, it, it made sense to me that they brought it out on the night they had the horns because the original has such a great horn part. I love this song. Uh, I, I have no nothing unkind to say about it. Uh, it's another one of those songs that Mark adds a lot to because he takes what Rich does on the record, which is like a harmonic part of of the main riff. And it's on the record, it's buried deep in the mix, but Mark kind of takes that and lays it on top and it's much more audible and it really, make, it really brings some more depth to the song in my opinion. Well, I think the horns are great on it. It makes it much more compelling. I got to admit, I've never been much of a fan. Hey, the crowd loves it. In the in this, and uh, I'm not always right. I'm trying to come to terms with that. But, uh, <laughs> well, that lead, that leads no, us kidding. into a song that has to increase the star rating by the for two reasons. One, it's first time played. Two, it's a uh, just an amazing cover that they didn't play very much. Uh, Loving Cup off Exile on Main Street, and this did not make the official release. This was a bonus song, the iTunes release, I believe.
This is one of my favorite Rolling Stone songs, and I really got into Exile on Main Street because of the Crows playing Torn and Frayed, if I'm being completely honest. And uh, Exile is a top five album of all time now for me, and man, they kill it on this, and Ed does such a nice job with the piano on it. Uh, This is a top ten cover for me by the Crows. Yeah, I agree with you. I think the the decision to make people buy it separately... uh, you know, I, I don't understand that. Uh, it was just another in a long line of dumb decisions that the brothers make. Um, I refuse to give them the money. Uh, this is a great cover, and they are made to play this song. God, Ed is good on it. I, I just, uh, I wish it was on the official, the official release. Um, yeah, top ten cover. I love Exile. Who doesn't? You know, right? I think people. This was on Dream set list for I don't even know how long. You know, Loving Cup. It's a great tune. I mean, actually, you know, it, not only is it the first time they played it, it's the only time they played it. And um, I always saw it actually because um, Rich Rich did a similar thing on that Knitting Factory release where he played um, Moonlight Mile, and that was left off the release too. I think it has something to do with um, publishing the the fees to license Stone songs. I think they I think they want exorbitant money to do it. So they must because the band songs on there, and that's not a big deal. 
All right, so nice. let's see. That takes us into Jealous again. We've talked about that already. Uh, next is a cover of Space Captain, and they really fell in love with this song on the 0506 days, and I really like it. I think it's kind of placed in an odd spot here, to be honest with you. For me, Space Captain needs to be uh, encore or toward the end of a second set, but uh, they kill it on this, the uh, Joe Cocker song, and um, it, it just really... It really makes me happy and i love kind of the outro of it and everything i I just it's one of my favorite covers they do and it's one that made me go get a joe cocker album because of that song and they they did let's get stoned let's go get stoned some that same time but uh yeah you never you you never get upset when space captain comes on at least i don't you guys may hate it but i love love it it. i was so happy when they brought it back from uh, after 1992 then played in a long time i i love this i do think though you know like Dark Trucks, does he listen to old uh, Black Crow shows and think, that'd be cool. I'm sure people uh, will like this tune. Because he's done so many of the same covers as them. Yeah. You know, the list is like Space Captain, Let's Go Get Stoned, uh, Leaving Trunk, Alabama, Down in the Flood, Coming Home, Dreams. Uh, I think this is another in a, a long line of that. But I, I think this is one of those interactive tunes that shows off every bit of the Black Crow's ability to – to plug into that uh that thing where everyone's singing and and the girls and it's so it's so beautiful this tune i love it it is this was this was a a real surprise for me and i uh i did see it live uh once i believe but it's uh you know it's bad dogs and englishmen it's leon russell's arrangement of this song i mean how can you go wrong with that i uh, i'm a big leon russell fan by the way i don't know if either of you guys are but i love the guy well, that takes us into the set closer. It's the always um, crowd-pleasing My Morning Song. I think this is a slightly above-average version of this one. Uh, I've heard some versions. I like the Glastonbury, Glastonbury Festival. When they played at Glastonbury, I like that version. That may be one of my favorite ones. But they do a good job of the build-up coming out of the uh, the jam, where I call it the sunrise portion. Uh, and that one always gets me going. I can listen to that part of my morning song live and it just makes the hair stand up on my arms. They had all the stupid cutaways during this, which is was not good for the, the video. But my morning song, that's to me, it's a great spot because it really builds, builds, builds. It brings you down and it builds you up to you can't take any more. And then it's like, all right, guys, like we can't follow that. So go get a beer and go to the bathroom and then come back. Well, I think this is just the greatest. I, I think you, you can't be a Black Rose fan if you don't like this tune. You just can't be. Uh, this particular jam, Steve is killing it. And he's really the guy pushing the envelope. This jam rips. I think the sunrise part you're talking about, Mark's note back into this, that sustained long note he plays back in, that's like, I could, I could, that's, that's everything to me. That's like the greatest thing in the world. I could listen to that all day long. I think you could do an entire podcast about the best morning songs that there are. I would nominate Syracuse 1996, 10, 16, 96. If you're a collector, go find that. That's my favorite. Um, but this is an, a really exemplary version, I thought. I'd have to agree. It's, it's one, of the, uh, one of the better versions of it. I'm glad it's, it's preserved on video as it was and, and all that stuff because it's, it's really uh, – I've always cited my morning song as an example. People like, what are the Black Crows all about? Uh, my morning song there you go that's like the definitive track i agree all right so everybody goes to the bathroom grabs a beer we come back and it's the same song they started set two with the night before 
Sunday night buttermilk waltz. So we'll skip through that. It goes into Cursed Diamond. Uh, this is on acoustic guitars as well. Not my favorite thing to hear acoustically, if I'm being completely honest. Yeah, it's uh, it's beautiful. Was was uh, New York uh, 1995? Was that the only other one that they've ever done it acoustic? The whole you know, in this kind of way. I believe uh, so. Yeah. I I wrote down Dave. I think the song loses its power in this setting. I agree with you. I think if you if you ever try and play this, the transitions in the solo are super tricky. I think the lyrics are great, but I think they. You know, they, it's a Gorman's a powerhouse on this tune. He's amazing on this song, and not having that slide in there really kind of it loses all its power. Also, I don't know. Chris tries really hard to do that scream, but it's like just time is a brutal foe. Uh, he cracks pretty hard in it. You know. You know, more often than not, unfortunately, if he tries to go full out on that later on, the result is not always the best. Yeah. Yeah, I thought I just thought this one was oddly placed and just kind of odd for this setting. But that leads us into "She Talks to Angels," and I actually prefer uh, more stripped down acoustic versions of "She Talks to Angels" versus uh, a lot of the electric versions. Yeah, I think Ed's piano work here is like sublime. Hey, people love this song. You know, if you can find it for me, the boss is the one they did on the Amorica premiere, ten twenty five ninety four. I think that's uh, the boss, but. Uh, I, I, you know, I like the big organ with that, but, um, yeah, I don't know. It doesn't do anything for me. I mean, she, I, if I'm going to get, she talks to angels, I like it in this format where it's a little bit more stripped down. I, it's just one of those songs that it's, it's such a great, it's a great song. It's well-written. It's, it, it was a big hit. I just, I think I've just burnt out on it. And then that coupled with again like i said earlier there's so much other material that they have that i i i'm so much more enamored with that i'd rather hear you know yeah but i guess you got to play the crowd pleasers you know we play in the americans every single time people love it they always love it and people ask for it you know people love that song it's that simple i agree with you and i think i've just heard it too many times yeah. all right so next is wiser time and you can't have a if you're the black crows and you're going to film a performance you have to have wiser time on in my opinion uh i think it my morning song and thorn in my pride are the three definitive songs uh of the black crows if i was going to explain them to an alien but man <laughs> this song just does not fit to me being primarily acoustic yeah i think uh personally this should always be pinned to ballad and urgency you know this should be a law about that uh this particular version feels kind of slow and i really don't get why rich is playing acoustic here this is this is one of those tunes that they build that sonic tapestry, Mark and and Rich, and you don't you don't really get that, and uh, it really doesn't work in the chorus for me at all. It loses its power. It this is one of those tunes that just have these huge builds, and you know it builds into almost a guitar orgasm kind of thing, and it really has trouble doing that when Rich isn't playing a guitar. I feel like I sound like old Mister Potter, but uh, <laughs> you know, I don't know. It bums me out that they put it here. You know, I, I would agree with you, Steve, that it, there should be some kind of, uh, you know, uh, Black Crow's Law that it says that this has to be paired with Ballad and Urgency at all times. A lot of times when I hear the opening notes to Wiser, I said, ah, you're not going to get uh, Ballad and Urgency. There's one other show, and I've only seen this once. I don't know if it's occurred more than once, but they played Ballad and Urgency and didn't go into Wiser time. So. I couldn't imagine being in the audience and I would be thinking the whole time that wiser time is coming and then you didn't get it. You know, it's weird. Uh, the definitive wiser time for me is, um, 
the two meter sessions, which I think was either eleven seventeen or eleven nineteen ninety six. That's the yeah. best version. I mean, you More guys are like you guys are like up. you guys are like Rain Man. Oh, <laughs> uh, smoking, smoking. That version smoke. He's one hundred percent right. That version smoking. Have you seen them do Wiser Ballad? I was about to ask yeah, you about I, that. I've, I, it, I've yeah. seen it in the set list one or, once or twice. Great Woods '97. They did it. It was fantastic with the bridge jam in the middle. That's just you know? messing with some people that are really high. You know, <laughs> hey man, they're going backwards. <laughs> <You know? laughs> All right, so we go into nonfiction into a jam, and and Dave Ellis sits in with this one. I just like nonfiction played straight through without all the kind of rapping that Chris does and uh, and the jam usually. I know people are going to cringe when I say that, but that just really never has done a lot for me. The Never Very Far Away jam, I'm with you, Dave. I think it's a, a snoozer, an absolute <laughs> snoozer. Although I think Dave Ellis does everything right in this particular version of it, and he, he adds something to it. Can I say this? What a bass line. I know, look, I heard your, your bass episode. Johnny is the boss. Okay, Johnny's the boss. Listen to these bass lines on Amorica. This bass line is outstanding, and Sunflower is a tour de force. I, I you know, I, I love this song. Love this song. David, I never thought we'd actually have to face a bass player after we did our bass episode. <laughs> I know, I'm embarrassed. <laughs> I'm embarrassed. Actually, I so wanted to jump on. <laughs> I, uh, I, to be perfectly honest with you, I think Sven. Is the is the definitive guy for the Black Crows, but that doesn't mean that I don't like Johnny. I uh, I just there's something about Sven's playing that is very uh, attractive to me, uh, you know, above any other guy they've had. But come, Johnny yeah. is is a very close second. Come clean, Johnny's- come clean, and you know you're a fan of the Greg Rizab era. Yeah, what that? Yeah, that that 15 minutes yeah, was the, the best uh, song fortunate. I ever had. Didn't fit. And Andy S is like really well regarded in the bass world. Oh yeah. Uh, but uh, I don't know, man. Johnny's Johnny is a badass, and you know he led all those jams in '96. I think he he really gets overlooked because look, Sven, he is uh, technically a wizard. I just don't like a lot of his choices. He plays a lot of mid-range notes. Johnny plays well up the neck, and I think Johnny's tones a lot better. That's just my opinion. Well, I don't, it, lots of people aren't listening to the bass anyway. It, to <laughs> me, Johnny Johnny was the biggest rock star in the history of the band. Oh yeah, I mean, he dressed the part, acted the part, he embraced it. He yeah. was he could play though. He could really really play. This is one of those tunes that that should suggest to people like, "Ooh, look at Johnny here. What a, what a great bass line this is." And oh, yeah, the next time you put on Sunflower, listen to the bass line in Sunflower. Good lord. He absolutely can play. I mean, they wouldn't they wouldn't invite him to join Leonard Skinner if he wasn't any good, you know. So that's what I was that's what I was going to say. If you listen to if you listen to a lot of musicians talk, they just talk about how good of a band Skinner was. We're going to go into hard to handle and another jam. This time they're going to have the horns with it. Nothing much for me to add other than to me, um, <laughs> you know, hard to handle. It gets a little bit better if you have the horns in there, but not much, not enough to make me. Uh, Go thumbs up on it. What are your guys' thoughts when they add the horns to it? I think they're complimentary. I think they start off the jam right. But again, much like you, Dave, I'm like, you know, check, please. Uh, get me to the next song. Right. Yeah, I, I feel the same way. It's just hard to handle, uh, you know, much like um, She Talks to Angels. is just a you know a song I'm, I'm personally burnt out on, and I, I'm waiting for other things, you know. Mark Ford is tearing it down in this jam, though. He really oh, yeah. is. He's killing it in this jam. I just, uh, yeah, I just don't want the song. 
Well, and we go from that into one of the more famous one-two punches in the Crows catalog. Share the ride into the cover of Mellow Down Easy. There's horns on both of these. And man, I know uh, some people don't like Chris's harmonica playing, but to me, every time Chris gets to play harmonica, I get excited. Uh, Share the ride, Mellow Down Easy. I love this every time. I never get tired of it. Yeah, no way. I, I, this is this of this show. This is a highlight for me. This this particular, uh, you know, one song into the other, you know, a combo like that. And from it, from the minute that Mark hits, it's only about a few seconds into the song. Mark hits a slide at the beginning. This it's not on the uh, studio version. Uh, I'm in. I, you know, I can't. Uh, it, it's 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 killer. Yeah, it's a very fun tune to play and. Uh... They've jammed out of this tune so many times in their career. I, I, you know, it has to feel natural with the other one. Uh, you know, I, I've seen them play it into Gone before. Uh, a bunch of bunch of different songs. I love Share the Ride. I got to admit, Mellow Down Easy. Mm, never been into this. I thought, you know, in 1995, I had enough of it. Really? But yeah, they love this tune. I just maybe I've seen it too many times. I've seen it too many times for it to be a novelty for me. I don't know. And so they're going to close the set out with the same song they closed out set the first night with Remedy. I got to think they did this one because the cameras are rolling. What do you guys mm-hmm. think? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense here. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And so they're going to come back with a great encore the night they drove O Dixie down. It's the first time played since 626-97. They bring the horns out. This is another one of those songs you think, this was custom made for them. <laughs> you know? Uh, and the horns really add a lot to on, on this version, for sure. Yeah, they incorporate the horns very well. And, and plus, it's just plain old cool. What a cool cover. Uh, the Steve drum rolls are just awesome. It has to be some kind of nod to The Last Waltz, right? Because that was filmed in Winterland. So I assume mm-hmm. that they're doing that. Eddie's organ solo is just wonderful. You know, Mark actually hits a couple of bum notes in the solo, uh, which, you know, who saw that coming, really? But uh, what a what a great cover. I, I loved it. Loved it. I'm a big fan of the band, and uh, this is one of my favorite songs by the band. It's, it's one of the few songs, I don't want to say few songs, but some songs just really hit you, and this song is like one of those welling up kind of songs sometimes if it, if it hits you in the right way. I love it. I would have been totally satisfied to get that as an encore. Well, who, who better to write a uh, song about post-Civil War South than a bunch of guys from Canada? 
Yeah. <laughs> right. uh, hey, Levon is from the South. Yeah, he's from Arkansas. Um, so, all right, so that's going to close this one. Obviously, everybody's probably got this on record and uh, on video. I'm going to rate this. I'm going to give it an eight and a half. And had it not have the night they drive O Dixie drive O Dixie down and Loving Cup and Space Captain on there, probably would have gone down to a seven for me. And I had it at a seven point five, and I only had it at a seven point five because of those covers. I think there's some weak spots in this set. Yeah, I, I was right in between you both. I had um, I had this as an eight, and that's mostly because of um, Loving Cup, Space Captain, and the addition of the horns, which I thought added a lot to songs that you may not necessarily have been excited to hear uh, you know you at least had the benefit of the horn parts on them you know all right so that brings us into august the 7th and uh man this one kicks off with a bang always in for a good show when virtue and vice is your um opening song yeah you know uh this song is a really great barometer of where chris's voice is it's really really high he struggles a little during the first verse and he, he cracks audibly a decent amount you know, maybe I'd think about dropping the key here if I was them. The girls' backups are, are gorgeous in this, but Chris really struggles. I, I think it's kind of a tough version, to be honest. I would agree with you, Steve. I, I It takes me out of it when when that happens, uh, you know, right out of the gate. And I would agree that, you know, a slight uh, key drop on this, you know, would probably solve that problem. So that goes into another song that I think is custom made for uh, a second s- slot and that's stare it cold man this one this one always gets you going and, and especially once it kicks in with mark comes in with the slide guitar uh, this is a song you always get excited when it's in the set list and uh mark really adds a lot to this and it's a great it's good of a second song as sting me is yeah always welcome uh, a tremendous groove mark dominates this tune uh, I would never expect this in the two slot. This this set already, you know, I wrote down the set already has a Sunday feel to it. And I looked it up and it turns out it was a Sunday. You know, <laughs> it's like a law that they have to play this tune on Sunday. It's so good. I, uh, you know, I, Stare Cold, I always, uh, I believe I said this on a previous episode, but I always liked it uh, as an opener. It's my favorite track off of Shake Your Money Maker. I never personally saw it live. Here, I, I think it's a fantastic version. It's mm-hmm. kind of a, uh, you know, one to punch with virtue and vice right out of the gate. You got some energy and I, I really like that. Uh, you know, and it's, 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 uh, it's somewhat of a rarity. I mean, I know they played it quite a few times, but this is one that Steric code is a song that I thought Luther did a really good job on songs from the back catalog. Mm. Uh, it's kind of almost tailor made for him, but we go into a jam and into a uh, black moon creeping. So we're going to get a little Southern harmony love. Uh, this one's always fun, especially with the backup singers. All right, I I, uh, I love the Black Moon Jam. You know, there are so many different versions of it. I, I uh, this is more like the one that they were playing in in '95. I, I like the one that they were playing in '96 personally. That said, this is an incredibly funky. It's always welcome. This particular one seems to revolve more around Chris's harp at the beginning and less around Mark's great fuzz tone. You know. Steve and Sven build this fat groove and Eddie's swinging all over it in the back. This is one of those tunes that that builds the momentum of the set almost better than any other tune. You see this in the three slot a lot. Chris comes in with with a bunch of improvised stuff in this. They're clearly feeling it. The actual tune is really swampy and I think uh, kind of slow. It's a really nice version. I, I think this is one of those tunes with a guitar interplay between Chris and Rich 
during the breakdown is the kind of playing people can only dream about. This is this one of the, this is that this song is the difference between Keith and Mick Taylor and Keith and Ron Wood. The way that, you know, not that Ron Wood blows because he doesn't, but he doesn't phrase the way Taylor does. And he doesn't work in the, with, with Keith the way Taylor does. And this is a prime example of that, this particular song. I love Black Moon Creeping. Oh, it's a great tune. And the, the jam on it is always perfect because it, I like, if, if there's a jam before the actual song, like that, that kind of setup, I always like it to like gradually work its way into the tune. And I, I, I think that the Black Moon Creeping Jam is, is a prime example of that. All right. Now we have what I think is one of the oddest three song runs in the history of a Black Crow set list Cosmic Friend, Descending, and Pre Road Downs. I've never been a fan of Cosmic Friend, regardless of who's playing on it or or anything where it is in a set list. Descending is descending. It's one of the songs that I think is just it's a perfect song. And um, anytime we get to hear Ed play that outro, it's just music to my ears. Pre Road Downs. I've never been a fan of this cover, and man, this is to me this is odd. Like the weed must have been good this night because I, I just don't understand this this pairing. <laughs> Well, the song does say "Be sure to hide the roaches, David." So, yeah, uh, I I would agree. I I'm a fan of uh, Cosmic Friend. I don't think it ever comes off live properly. It there's too much open space on the song. It always sounds kind of tinny to me live. Descending to me always seems like it's a good set closer because of the Ed's piano outro and uh pre-road downs i mean i'm a very big fan of the first crosby sills and nash record and that song in particular so i and i got that at uh hammerstein uh 05 when i the show i saw they played that and i thought it was really cool but if you don't if you're not into the song i could under, totally understand why it wouldn't thrill you in any way yeah i feel the same way about cosmic friend as you do dave it's one of my least favorite crow songs uh always felt forced to me uh, just not a fan. Every time I got it, I wanted something else. They're trying to force coolness down your throat. I just I, I don't <laughs> that tune at all. Really, what can I say about descending that hasn't been said? You know, I was in the Gramercy for the first Magpie show. Tears. Uh, you know, the guitars intertwining here as if they're like born together. I, I just the yin and yang. Ed's outro is just beautiful. Everything that makes you a Black Rose fan uh, is is right in this version. I uh, I fall on inside on pre road downs. I, one of my favorite covers. Uh, I first heard it at all. all join hands myself. Mark Ford's wall work on this is insane. I can't imagine them ever playing this with Luther. I just can't. I think even Crosby, Stills, and Nash would hear this version and be like, "Damn." You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd agree. <laughs>
Well, that leads us into Ian's favorite song off Shake Your Money Maker, Could I've Been So Blind. Um, I like the song. I'm sorry. I like it. I think it's a barn burner of a, of a song to play live. And like I say on here many times, at their essence, the Black Crows are a rock and roll band. And, and this is, this is to me, it's great rock and roll. Goes into a jam and then to By Your Side. Always love By Your Side when Mark plays on it. But uh, So what do you guys think about that combo? Could I have been so blind as one of those tunes? Uh uh, one of the singers in the Americans, Ermine, picked it, and I was like, "Ugh." She goes, "What do you you don't like that song?" I'm like, "No, I think it's it's it always goes bad. It's a bad tune." <laughs> and uh, you know, I started playing it, and it turns out I I kind of like it now after playing it for a while. But uh, it was a rarity when they were playing it at this show. They hadn't broken it out since the European leg of the Three Snakes tour. Mark and Ed kill the solo. That that heart part almost sounds like they're throwing in a Midnight Rambler tease in the jam. Uh, you know, like the, you heard about the Boston Strangler part. Right. Um, I wonder if that's improvisational or whatnot. I've always dug by your side. The uh, first time I heard it was at Riverside Park on the further tour. And on July 4th, I thought it was tumbling dice, to be honest. That that intro reminds me a lot of it. And, uh, you know, this is true. a fairly standard version. I never thought of that, Stephen. That's, a, there's a, that's very true. It is very similar to that uh, that intro to that to tumbling dice. Could I have been so blind? I mean, I kind of touched on this in the uh, the Shake Your Money Maker episode that we did, but uh, it's just a very generic song to me. It's a it's not a bad song. It's a bad Black Crow song, and um, Steve is killer on it. Always, I always like his his drums on it, but it's it's song never did much for me. By your side, I really like. A lot of people have always told me they prefer if it ever stops raining as the lyrics, but I actually always uh, preferred the by your side lyric instead and uh i've gotten it once or twice live here it's 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 really cool coming out of that jam so i I, I, i'd be pleased if i was if i was a spectator at this one so this is a very jam heavy first set uh you had Mm. you had the jam before black moon creeping and then after could have been so blind and then we have downtown money waster into a jam uh into thorn in my pride i'm never going to be happy when downtown money waster is played but man i'm always happy when thorn in my pride is played so this is two out of three nights we've closed the first set with thorn in my pride you know david you and i must see the world alike a lot uh <laughs> i am not a fan of downtown money waster oh um, my God, top five bad song this. by the crows I, I appreciate what they're trying to do but look take this off of morica and put on tied up and swallowed or feathers mm-hmm. i mean which one would you rather have i just don't even understand what they were thinking you know, Ron Wood said very famously, these guys throw away more famous songs, more great songs than most bands have. And I think it's a perfect example of it. Why would you put on Downtown Money Waster? Uh, I think Mark's slide work in it is great, although I feel like I'm saying that every tune. Uh, <laughs> I'm not into like this kind of deconstructionist jam thing, and that's kind of what they do here. I get really worried when Chris gets out the jingle bells. I get very worried. <laughs> uh, You're right. The... Uh... The, the bells coming out is cause for alarm. That means we're going into some odd territory. You know, Ed's all over this crazy Middle Eastern type jam. And I, I get where they're trying to go with, with Thorn of My Pride. Again, any single time it comes on, I'm happy. I'm happy. I like Downtown Money Waster, but I, I, and I, can't, I honestly can't recall because I listened to these shows, you know, kind of in one fell swoop. And I, I kind of forget. I, but I think they play the version of it that I prefer. And that's the the electric version, which was on the band sessions, you know, the outtake from the band sessions on it. That's the version I like because Steve lays down one hell of a groove on that on the drums. All right. So that ends set one, we come back set two and kind of an oddball cover here. Uh, this is the way uh, a Devendra Banhart 
cover, and uh, I'm not just not a big fan of it. I'm I'm not kind of into that freak folk stuff, and, and if I remember correctly, that's what he did, right? Absolutely. I saw this in Hampton Beach 06 and was like, can we get to the next song? Yeah, I just oh. don't like it. Right. I'm surprised. I I kind of I kind of like this one. I like Rich singing it. I got this at um, Brothers of a Feather uh, at the the Rose Hall show in uh, New York, and I thought it was cool then too. I don't, and I and so much so that I went and bought the Vendor Banhart's record, and uh, the, his stuff does nothing for me. So it must just be Rich that I enjoy. I guess. All right, so <laughs> let, let me ask you guys this. I kind of have a theory on these kind of songs. I feel like sometimes Rich wants to be viewed more at times as more of a singer songwriter than necessarily like how we all view him. Like I view him as this great riff writer, uh, you know, writes great songs. But to me, a lot of times this really stripped down singer songwriter stuff like this just doesn't fit Chris and rich in a, in a black crow setting. What's your thoughts on that? Like sometimes I think they pick some of this stuff to try to get maybe some credibility with music critics. I don't know. What do y'all think? I don't know. I think sometimes they're just playing what they like. I mean, who plays Pardon My Heart? You know, and it's got the same. I mean, they're doing the same thing. I just don't like this song. Yeah. You know, I think sometimes they're on the bus and they're like, yeah, I want to play that, you know, and they and they do, which is kind of what's awesome about them. You know, you might see something you don't like, but you might see something you really like. Yeah. And they they could turn you on to something that just came out like when they played big time. This is the way, uh, like as I just mentioned, I saw it in the Brothers of a Feather setting, and it definitely worked better there. It was more akin to that kind of, you know, that it's real more intimate thing. It's a little, it's real, it's a real subtle song. It, it's it's oddly placed in in this kind of show. All right, I don't think there's ever going to be a complaint when they play "Torn and Frayed," whether it's acoustically nope. or full on electric. Traditionally, this song is near the last of the second set or as an encore. Here we have it uh, kind of right out of the gate set to this is the song that really made me a massive fan of, of Exile on Main Street, made it one of my favorite albums. Uh, I've said it before. I think this is my favorite cover that they do. It was tailor made for these guys. Yeah, I got to admit, I like it better electric, but this is very cool. You can hear Ed so many runs over this that are just fantastic. But I agree with you, David. I, I heard this in 96 at UNH in Durham and was just I never expected and was like, whoa, I, I, I love Torn and Fred. Big fan. Great cover. Top top five cover for me, too. Yeah, uh, Torn and Fred is excellent. This is actually their their covering it is what got me is led me back to Exile on Main Street and, and really delve much deeper into the Stones work around that time and, and become a big appreciator of Mick Taylor and things like that. All right. So the next song is uh, a song that I think takes a beating sometimes from the fans that i actually really enjoy miracle to me i think it's a very just tender love song and and chris really shows his emotion on this and i don't know what it is but that line where he goes tell me why have you been crying the way he sings it it's to me it's just kind of a rips at my heart and i just really enjoy this song i think it's underappreciated i think had this not been on lines people might view it differently i think some people are just going to poo-poo on anything that's connected with lines but didn't get played a whole whole lot but uh, when you saw it it, they did a good job on it and they they do not disappoint on this version i like it i think it's uh i think it's standard uh the version uh i like the tune i'm always happy to hear it i think this is one of those tunes sometimes they want to act like they have more soul than they have and this isn't an example of that i think this is really a a really 
as you said, um, heartfelt song. I, I really like this song. I've always been a big fan of it. Uh, it was a standout on Lions for me. And uh, anytime that it, it comes out live, I just think it's great. Mark adds some nice coloration to it. Ed does some real subtle things on it that I've always enjoyed. I think it's a great song, and I think it actually flows into the next song nicely, too. All right, so the next song is Girl from the North Country, the Bob Dylan song. Um, and uh, I always love it when other people play Bob Dylan songs, and uh, and he doesn't have to hear him sing. Uh, I may get some pushback on that. A, a song basically tailor-made for this setting, although I do prefer the uh, electric versions of this. There is one on that Fonda run in 05 where Mark Ford just puts on a clinic of all clinics on the solo and I find myself just going back and listening to that over and over again. This one is never never a bad one to see on a set list. No, I, I love this tune. I got it real into it when I was listening to uh, uh, Bootlegs from 96, and I love the way Rich sings it. It's almost improved here because his, his, his vocal abilities improved by this point. And David, if I'm not mistaken, isn't there a version of this that has Johnny Cash on it? There is, Ian. So this is one of my favorite covers. Always welcome. I, I really wish that that... I really wish that Rich wasn't acoustic on this because I, I feel like the guitar interplay on this is like absolutely outstanding. I really feel like they're telling me a story with this song. This is a storyteller's song. And uh, I love Chris and Rich trading verses. I feel like it's a road song, you know. I feel like the 96 versions you're mentioning are the definitive versions. All right, so that leads us to a song that just the sheer fact it's on the set list, I'm going to have to duck half a point. Uh, Boomer, <laughs> Boomer's story. This has kind of become legend on this show. It's kind of like my dislike for Diamond Ring. Uh, Boomer's story. Uh, I'm never going to like it. I never will. You won't convince me to like it, but they played it nonetheless. So I believe Steve has already said he likes this song. So uh, Steve, your praise will fall on deaf ears. I love this song. Bury me beside the railroad. This is a road song. I was all kinds of happy that that Brothers of a Feather broke this out in uh, Amsterdam. You know, they've been playing it since 91. Big fan of this tune, but I get it when people don't like it. It's long. It tells a long story. There's lots of starts and stops, but I always feel like it's a barometer of where they are on the road. I, I love this track. I agree with you, Steve. It's it's. I love that. Bury me down beside the railroad so I can hear the train go by. That's like heartbreaking to me. Oh, and the, the band is very faithful to Ry Cooter's original version. If you listen to Ry Cooter's version on the album, it's very close to it. I think I think the album is called Boomer's Story, right? It is. Yep. Did uh, Luther Dickinson's dad, did he produce that album? Because I know he did some work with Ry. He um, did. It got played a lot with Luther. I swear I went to like three shows in a row and that was the, the like the encore or whatever. But so we pick up steam back into some original music. Ballad and Urgency, Wiser Time. But uh we're still keeping it kind of mellow here. But uh we've talked earlier, both of us all of us like uh this combo and um it's always a good one to hear live and really uh kind of showcases the band and in, in, in its with its peak powers. Yeah, for me this is a true set piece. Ballad was one of those tunes that was never right without Mark, ever. Luther never really got the vibe of this. Somebody would play all those, those staccato notes too fast. It's, it's one of those times in the show where you know you're seeing a transcendent band. They bring you on a journey. That bridge jam is just oh, it's just the greatest thing. This jam takes a while to, to build. And, you know, Rich's first solo is, is really tremendous. He doesn't solo a ton during the show, 
but this is really good. And uh, the ending build into Wiser is great. Ed's Ed's wonderful. You know, Wiser's always good. When is Wiser bad? You know, you know. And some people would uh, argue that uh, Wiser time isn't so good when uh, Adam McDougal gets his hands on it. But <laughs> I uh, I don't necessarily agree with that. Every time there's some times where he took it some weird directions, but it wasn't it wasn't 100 percent across the board in my opinion. Adam McDougal never got the vibe of that song. He was trying to do something that that wasn't, you know, it's it's like when you play the wrong scale or something. Uh, it's just he never got the vibe of that song. He gets a, a kind of a bum rap because that guy can really play. Well, mm-hmm. Steve says that it was Chris that made him start playing all the outer space stuff. That's what he told us. Um, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised by that at all. All right. So we've had a very, very mellow set up to this point, and we're going to kick it up with uh, Blackberry off Three Snakes and One Charm. If I was at this show, I would actually be excited to hear Blackberry this time because it is an upbeat, rocking song, and we've had, you know, we've been pretty mellow and chilled out here up until this point. Yeah, I'm not a Blackberry guy. There's there's nothing wrong with this version, but you know, chicka boom, chicka boom doesn't really do anything for me. <laughs> yeah, I've I've never been a huge uh, Blackberry guy. It, it's like a sore thumb on Three Snakes. It's it doesn't fit in with the vibe. It's almost the same as having if you had just say sorry on Three Snakes. It doesn't fit in properly. Agreed. All right, we go to the cover. Shake your money maker. I'm just I'm always kind of lukewarm on this. I'm not going to get upset if they play it, but I'm not going to be disappointed if they if they skip it. Yeah, you know, every time that the riff starts, I'm like, yeah, okay. Ed always kills it, and there's a bunch of good solos on it. But I'm always praying for something else. Uh, it I, like I've seen it. I always, I always only got really thrilled with this song when they did it with Paige. For some reason, that Agreed. had a different uh, vibe to it. Yeah. Otherwise, it's, uh, it's a, it's kind of a bit of a dud for me. Agreed. And, and we're going to close the set out with a, with a stomper here. Twice as hard. I've talked about it numerous times in here. One of my favorite songs to open the set with and close the set with. This is one of the more played songs off of um, "Shake Your Money Maker." Boris, I get a little tired of some of the other ones. For some reason, I never get tired of this one. And the more I listen to it with Mark, the more I realize there's a lot going on between Rich and Mark during this song that um, you necessarily don't hear on the album version. And I think it's a great way to close the set, especially since the set was so mellow and this is anything but. Did I say we saw the world the same? <laughs> I don't know. This is my most hated hit. I, I mean, I get why they play it completely, but I'm I'm not really super interested in it. I uh, 
I do think Mark's amazing on it. I just every time it starts, I'm like, okay, twice as hard. <laughs> uh, in hope that you know, fun fact: the night before New Year's 05, I saw the set list, and I know it's out there. The last song was supposed to be "Coming Home," and they they the crowd was so good, they cut that and went to "Twice as Hard." I'm like, could, how about "Coming Home"? <laughs> you know. <laughs> See, I've always uh, I've always been a fan of uh, Twice as Hard, uh, especially live. I like it as an opener. I got it twice, and um, I don't know something very exciting about it in the moment. You know, I and I also like the way they uh, they stretch out the uh, the the ending a little bit, just a little bit. But it's it's uh, very cool. I think it's a nice way to wrap up uh, this particular set. It needed a rocker. Yeah, they are killing me. They're in San Francisco, and it's like a they've turned to a Beatles cover band. Here comes uh, your blues. <laughs> Awful song. Don't like it. I would be upset if I paid a lot of money to fly out to San Francisco for one show, and this is what they close with. Oh, boy. All right. <laughs> this is, uh, wow. All right. Look, uh, this is one of the reasons I adore the band is a cover like this. Like, wow. Crazy idea. Who does this song? The time signature change alone in is, is crazy. I, I caught this twice, uh, luckily enough, once at the Hammerstein and once at, at Hampton Beach. This kind of cover shows a super confident band. This is not an easy song, especially to pull off live. What a crazy tune. I, I actually really love this tune, to be honest. It's dark and nasty. It is. I, this is, uh, this is a, a, a tune from the Beatles catalog I really enjoy. Funny thing is, though, Steve, and I don't know if, you, uh, if you'll have the same opinion, I feel like the Crows cover version follows more the... Uh, uh, rock and roll circus take on it, the Dirty Mac. The Dirty Mac, it, yeah. It, which is a little grittier. I, I kind of uh, think that their version's like that. And that's the version of the song I really like is that one by the Dirty Mac. Well, anything with Keith playing bass and Eric Clapton <laughs> yeah. guitar has to be pretty good. That's what I'm saying. All right, guys, uh, we, we're going to close this show out. I give it a seven. Yeah, I gave it an eight. And I'm not sure why after talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> I hit this one with a six only because it was a little too much shaky money maker material here for me. And could I have been so blind? I can't. <laughs> I, it, it, it's a deduction for me. The performance was was good, though. Maybe even more uh, six and a half, perhaps. All right, guys, that is three shows and we're running kind of long. So why don't we cut this into uh, two episodes and save uh, the best for last? Because those last two shows are... Uh, epic and maybe the best one-two punch in the history of the black crow so we'll have part two next week so steve why don't you play us out with a song from uh one of the first three nights yeah i can't have you not give me that fat ass version of pre-road downs all right so here we go pre-road down stay tall everybody (laughs) 